Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. Luke chapter 6, whether you're watching online or in the room, we're going to be in Luke chapter 6. Here recently I have sort of honed in a, um, a pastime. It's not really a hobby, um, but more of a pastime. I have always enjoyed uh, true crime. Uh, the kind of books that I read, shows, documentaries, those kind of things. I've always enjoyed uh, what's called true crime, the genre there. And specifically here lately, I've kind of gotten into finding out the rest of the story. And let me explain what's going on with that. In my life, there have been a number of, of um, circumstances, there have been a number of events that happened that I, I knew about, but I really wasn't aware of all of the factors that were going into it. For instance, the, the OJ trial or uh, the Branch Davidian, those sort of things that I was aware of, but I didn't really know sort of the backstory. It wasn't like my mom and dad sat me down and like, all right, here's what's happening in Waco. Um, they didn't really explain these things. I just kind of saw them. And so now I like to go back, watch documentaries or read books or articles and kind of uncover the other things that were going on that as a kid I just didn't fully get. In that pursuit, I, I recently watched a documentary on the Unabomber, and I knew about it. I knew some things about it. There's jokes, there's stories, those sort of things when it comes to the Unabomber, but I, but I didn't really know anything about the actual story. In fact, one of the things I learned through the documentary was the why, why the person was called a Unabomber. I thought Una my whole life was like Spanish, like there's only one bomber, uh, like Uno bomber. That's kind of what I thought they were doing with that uh, in some regard, but it wasn't. Una is um, U-N-A, Universities and Airlines Bomber. That's where that nomenclature came from. So that's something that I learned. Something I've noticed as I have uh, been watching these sort of shows, reading these sort of books, is almost always in the storyline, there comes a scene in which the police officers or the FBI or somebody will sit down with a surviving victim and ask them the same question. No matter the story, no matter the setting, whether it's in L.A. or it's in Waco or it's in New York, they will sit down and ask them the same question. And the question goes like this. They say, do you know anyone who would want to harm you in this way? Do you know anybody that would want to try to harm you? And the people always respond the way that I think all of us would respond is, no, I don't know anybody that would try to do this to me. In fact, show of hands, how many of you, if the police came to you and let's say your brake lines were cut or you received a package with some, some sort of, uh, you know, questionable material in it, how many of you would be able to answer the police officer when they say, do you know anybody that would try to do this to you? How many of you would be like, yeah, sure, let me say, I've got about five or six people you definitely need to go talk to. Anybody like that? No, of course not. You don't have a list of people that want to hurt you. I mean, unless you're Carol Baskin, you don't really know who is out there trying to get at you, right? That's just not something we carry around with us. We don't know who our enemies are like that. But what if we did something a little bit more minor, some minor offenses? These I think you could make a list for. If the police came to you and they were asking you about some things like this, what uh, let's see if you would know anybody. The first one is, someone stole your AirPods. 
If someone stole your AirPods, would you know, would you have a good idea who's walking around with those things in their ears? You got an idea? That's gross, by the way. Don't put other people's AirPods in your ears. Another one is um, someone in your house ate all of the vanilla wafers. Do you know who ate all of the vanilla wafers? You got a good idea? You got a, yeah. Um, in the first service, in the eight o'clock, I said this, and there were like these couples who have no children. It's just this married couple. And they looked at each other like, I know who did it, you know? And it's like, you know, good job, Sherlock. You know, there's one other person in the house. Someone took your shirt from your closet. I'm thinking about like sisters, roommates here. You know who, who took that shirt. They're wearing it. If I told you someone made a snide comment on your latest Facebook post, you don't, you know what your Facebook post was, but you don't, you haven't read the comment yet. Do you have a good idea who made a snide comment on your Facebook post? Of course. You've got, a, I've got about three people that make one more snide comment and they're getting blocked. Three more people and I'm censoring um, them. What about, let's assume a mutual friend. You and I have a mutual friend and um, our mutual friend told me just a moment ago, they told me that, that you don't have one shred of political sense in your head. You, have, you, you don't understand American politics at all. Do you have an idea who that friend is? you know who said that? Nobody said that. Some of you are like feeling guilty. Uh, someone stole your stapler. They borrowed your stapler, your red stapler, and they haven't brought it back yet. Do you know who stole your stapler? Because that's a big question. Who stole your stapler? Maybe you could list these folks out. Maybe you could, in these situations, know exactly who uh, the people are. You're, these nefarious people, these, these people who mean you harm. You're not going to say their name. I'm not going to say their name out loud. But we both know this list of enemies. Your list of people that mean you harm. As we are looking in this series of, series of Jesus is, we are being introduced to the person of Jesus. Luke is telling us who this person is. That's why every week we're Jesus is, and, and this week he is compassionate. As you look at the stories of Jesus, then it's very clear to us that Jesus treated his enemies with compassion, with kindness, with, with grace. That, that's something that we see in a bunch of the stories. And, and to be honest with you, that's, that's fine. I mean, it's it's kind of cool. And if you know anything about Jesus, then it's not surprising to you at all, right? I mean, this is just kind of the way that Jesus was. It's good with us. We're cool with that. We're fine with Jesus treating his enemies with kindness and, and graciousness. And we're fine with that until Jesus goes off and does the unthinkable. Until Jesus goes off and does something that is so crazy that it just alters everything. We're fine with Jesus loving his enemies until he goes off and tells us, to do the same thing. That's where it just kind of goes off of the rails. Let's pray together, and then we're going to look at Jesus telling us to do the same thing that he did. God, we are so thankful that we can gather together both in person and online to make much of your son, Jesus. And so as we, as we look to the scriptures, as we study these words, God, I pray that we would, we would see them as authoritative, that we would let them change our actions and change the way that we think. God, we would not seek to find the exceptions in the rule, but instead we would seek to live in the standard that best reflects you to a hurt and to a dying world that just cannot see past its own hate, but needs to. God, I pray that we are that kind of people, that we leave here today with a, a renewed passion to exemplify you in our communities. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 38. If you are 
following along in the journal, if you are following along in your Bible, you understand that we jumped ahead. We were in chapter 3, now we're in chapter 6. Next week we're going to go back to 4. And that seems a little confusing, but let me just speak to that uh, before we kind of unpack Luke chapter 6. The, the organization, the place where we uh, partner with for our curriculum is called Lifeway. It's owned by us Baptists. And every year we, we kind of put an emphasis on the sanctity of human life. And that's really sort of underlying why they picked this text. Now, this text doesn't speak to that directly. It has some implications to it. So I'm going to preach the point of the text. However, I do want to mention and make it very clear that we as Baptists, we as Christians, Orthodox Christians, Christians who follow what the Bible teaches, we believe in the sanctity of human life. We believe that life begins at conception. We make no apologies about that. And life has value in made in the image of God human life from the time of conception all the way to the point of death. And so we value that whether it is a, a, an infant, whether it is an unborn child, or it is a, a, a senior adult, all stages of life, we value human life equally because all life, all human life is made in the image of God. So I, um, I want to emphasize that. I want to let you know that very clearly about that. But like I said, Luke chapter 6, 27 through 38, that's not the main point of the text. So let's, let's focus in instead on the main point this morning. Looking at verse 27 through 28, Jesus makes uh, it very clear what he's saying here. He says, But I say to you who listen, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. It's like, it's a statement. Love your enemies. And then he's got these three unpackings of kind of what it looks like to do what Jesus says there. Before we get really into the idea or the concept of enemies, I think it's helpful for us to back up one step and remind ourselves, what does Jesus mean when he uses the word love? Love is a word that we use so often in our culture and in our language, in the English language, that it, it loses a lot of its impact, a lot of its strength. In fact, a lot of its strength, our, our definition gets um, misused or mistreated. In the Bible, and this is worth writing down, this is worth memorizing. In the Bible, love is an intentional sacrifice for the good of others. Love is an intentional sacrifice for the good of others. Intentional means that it is a decision. It is an action that you take once you have decided or once you have considered all of your options. You sacrifice your time, your money, your energy, your resources, your intellect for the good of other people. Not necessarily yourself, but sometimes you benefit from it, but it really is directed toward the benefit of other people. That's what love is. Now, can you have lovingly feelings or loving feelings toward another person? Can you look at another and, and feel butterflies and rainbows and all of that sort of stuff? Of course you can. And that's a good thing, and that's a gift from God. And so I'm not saying that love is not a feeling, that they are related, but they are not the same. They are related, but they are not the same, which is helpful in our conversation. Because it is very hard to muster up or to create rainbows and butterflies for your enemies. And if that's what Jesus was telling us to do, then it's not, I don't even think it's possible to uh, follow that and to be consistent with that. But that's not what he's telling us to do. What he told us to do was to intentionally make a decision to sacrifice something for the good of the 
enemy in this case. There are two things that Jesus takes into account that he kind of builds upon that he is assuming are true as he tells us to love our enemies. And the first one is this. You will have enemies. You're going to have enemies. You're going to have people who will work to undo what you are working for. They will speak against what you speak for. They will see things differently than the way that you see things. They may even try to harm you physically or financially or emotionally. You are going to have enemies. A lot of us, this is the kind of concept that keeps us up at night. It's the kind of thing that just gets in our craw and will not let us go. We, we, we lose sleep from the reality of knowing that somebody might be mad at us, right? Because uh, those of us who are people pleasers, we want everybody to be happy. And, and I'm that way. I want everybody, I'd much rather everybody be happy than a few people be upset with me. But there is this truth that you have to accept at some point in your life, not everybody is going to like you. In fact, some people are really, really not going to like you, okay? They're, they're, they're not going to like you, and you don't even know why. They don't tell you. They just don't like you. If they did tell you, then you would realize that's a dumb reason in the first place, but they don't like you. You will have enemies. Jesus had enemies, and he's letting you know you're going to have enemies. Here's what I want you to do when you have enemies. Love them. He's also communicating to us this very high standard that God has. We seek often to lower the standard of God. When we look at what God teaches us, we will often look at it and say, you know, nobody can do that. And so let's, let's bring it down to a city or to a setting or, or to a, a zone that I can reach for. Let's bring it down to a level that I can actually jump over. He's got this super high standard. And what we need to do is realize that there is these high standards that God holds up before us and that we are supposed to strive for them. We are supposed to work for them and we are not supposed to lower them. When God calls us to love our enemies, he knows it's a high standard. But he also knows that it is achievable, that it is workable when we are in Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. So these are realities. Let's not seek to lower the standard God has given us to love our enemies, but instead to do it in the power of Jesus Christ and facilitated by the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus does in this next moment as he lays out this truth, he says, love your enemies, and then he, he cuts them off at the chase. He goes ahead and he speaks against what I call what ifs. All the time, when we are confronted by something that we don't want to do, that we think is hard to do, or is uncomfortable to do, one of our, our ways of addressing that, one of the tools we use to try to uh, lessen the impact is we begin to go in the what ifs. Well, what if this? Or what if that? Jesus says, love your enemies. And we're like, yeah, but what if this? That's, that's the way that we approach the situation. And it really drives us to ask ourselves this question. What are the what ifs? What would you say are the what ifs that would be satisfactory? That would be acceptable for you to disobey, ignore, forego the actual command of Jesus Christ? What is the excuse you think is acceptable for you to ignore the command of our Lord and Savior, the God of the universe. He said to do something. Do you have any idea what might be acceptable for you to get out of that or not do it or not even try? I mean, obviously the answer is nothing. There is no what if 
that would allow us to get out of what he said to do. Look at the specific what ifs that Jesus addresses here. In verse um, 29. In verse 29, he says, If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. That's turn the, turn the other cheek. That's, that's where that phrase comes from. And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you, and from someone who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Two what ifs. Jesus says, love your enemy. And the people standing by go, yeah, well, what if they, what if my enemy hits me? What if they physically harm me? Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, them. That's an enemy. Good job identifying an enemy. Love that person. Oh, man, that's, that's steep. Jesus, what if they steal from me? What if they take something that's mine? Like, like I don't know, my coat. Jesus says, yes, love them as well. In fact, intentionally sacrifice your shirt for them as well. There's no what if that lets you out of these things. It's like physical harm or, or what if they steal from me? Then Jesus says, yes, those are enemies. Love them anyways. Now, let me pause the sermon for just a second and speak to you about something that is not in the text. In fact, that's what I want to point out. Sadly and tragically, throughout the history of Christianity, the Bible and certain quotes from Jesus and certain quotes from the Bible have been misused, misapplied. They've been put into situations that they were not intended to be put into. And this might be one of those. So when Jesus tells you to turn the other cheek when somebody strikes you, he's talking in the context of an enemy. He's talking in the context of somebody out there meant to harm you. He is not talking about um, a situation, say, like spousal abuse or abuse within the home. He is not talking about a relationship in which you are supposed to be vulnerable and you are supposed to be safe. In those situations, it is not the expectation of Jesus. It is not the expectation of Scripture. It is not the expectation of your pastor or your church that you would continue to be put into a situation or you would allow yourself to stay within a situation in which you or someone else is regularly and constantly in physical harm. That's not what Jesus says. In fact, what we say to you, what, what is clear is for you to remove yourself from that situation if you can. And if you need help, then you let me know and I will be that help. We will get you that kind of help. There is no expectation within Christianity that you would continually put yourself in a situation in which you are supposed to be safe and yet you are not. That's not what the scripture is teaching. He's talking about these people we disagree with, these people on the outside, these others that would try to hurt us based on our religion or our politics, based on the thoughts that we have, not the close personal family relationships, but the exterior relationships. And make this very clear. When he tells the people who are standing there with him and he speaks these words out loud, you are to love your enemies, the concept of enemy is not something that was hypothetical. These people who heard Jesus say these words walked every day down the street, walked every day in front of their houses to the market, to the temple, and they passed people. They looked people in the eye. They knew people by name who were their actual enemies, who were part of a foreign occupying military that took their land, that killed their relatives in military conflicts, that would abuse them or mistreat them. When Jesus tells them to love their enemies, they knew people by name who were hurting them or who could possibly hurt them. It is a revolutionary thought 
It is a mind-blowing idea. In fact, you would have to excuse those who are standing there. And Jesus says these words, to love your enemies, pray for those, do good for those, that somebody, either under their breath or out loud, would say, that's crazy. That's literally the words of a lunatic. Nobody should expect us to love our enemies. And yet Jesus says that. Jesus does that. See, what Jesus does at this point is not only has he put the standard out there, not only has he said the truth, and not only has he done away with the excuses, but then he builds this um, standard, this ruler by which to measure our actions. And he starts at the bottom there. He starts at the bottom and, and, then, he, and then he works his way up. If you look in verses 31 through 34, you can see this standard becoming life. You can see it there at the bottom. He says, just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that as well. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. Jesus says, the bottom of the standard, this is what I want you to do. There's not really an excuse to get out of it, but there's this bottom standard that even sinners love others who love them in return. See, I think what Jesus is doing is, is speaking directly to um, maybe another objection that we might have. We hear Jesus say, love your enemies, and we hone in on the love part, and we're like, yeah, I'm, I mean, I got that, Jesus. I'm loving. I'm a loving person. We're loving people. That's, that's how we would maybe respond to Jesus. And I, I think Jesus would say, yeah, I know. I'm not saying you're not loving. In fact, you are loving. You're very loving people. But you're, you're, you're only loving to the people who are loving back to you. You're only loving and good to the people who are good back to you. I mean, that's generally what you do. And Jesus says, everybody does that. Everyone does that. Even people who reject the standards of God. Even people who live their life away from God. Even people who would shake their fist at God. Even those people love other people who are loving to them. Jesus says, that's no credit. That's no good. That's not greatness. That doesn't reflect my glory in the world. That's just what people do. So he goes from the bottom of the standard, you know, do good to those who are, do the same that you would want others to do to you, the bottom of the standard. They, even sinners do that. And then he goes all the way up and he says, don't focus on them. Instead, focus on the higher standard and fo focus on the higher task, which is in 35 through 36. Look at that. Read that along. I'll read it with you. 35 says, but love your enemies, do what is good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For He, that's the Most High, that's God, He is gracious to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Two twin attributes of Jesus um, as he posits them out here for the, for the goal for which we're supposed to achieve or, or push toward is the, the mercy and the grace of God. 
God's grace and God's mercy. Don't focus on what sinners do. Instead, focus on God's grace and his mercy. It's important for us to review, again, not only love, but grace and mercy. And I know you know this, but let's just pretend we don't. Grace is the giving of things that we do not deserve. Grace is when you give somebody something that they do not deserve, and you give it to them anyways. And I think it's helpful for us as Christians if we're going to grow and mature as believers and as Baptists and as Christian and even as humans for us to sit down and to recognize all of the things we don't deserve. Especially if you ever get into these settings where you're feeling like life is not fair. Like I'm not really getting what is owed to me. If you ever sit down in those moments and kind of list out all of the things that you don't deserve. You've heard it said, you've heard it sung, count your blessings and name them one by one. That's a, that's a good thing to say. That's a good thing to sing. It's a good thing to do, but I think it's more impactful. I think it's more pressing if we say it this way. Let's count, let's list out all of the things that we don't deserve. Because in reality, isn't every blessing something that I don't deserve? Isn't there so many things in your life, whether they're common good like beauty and like weather and nature, the common good that we all receive that blessing, or whether it's specific like your church, like your friends, like your family, like some of the freedoms that you enjoy. These are things that I don't deserve. That's grace. The reverse related to it, but not the same, is mercy. Grace is giving us what we do not deserve, And mercy is holding back what we do deserve. There are so many good things that I don't deserve. And in fact, in my life, there are so many bad things I really actually have earned. That my life should be much worse. And the same with you. Because of how bad we are. We don't deserve any of the good. In fact, we deserve a lot more bad than we have ever been given. Max Lucado says it this way. There is a difference between grace and mercy. Mercy is the decision. And I love that he uses the word decision in this, in this phrase because it goes back to love. Love is an intentional sacrifice. Mercy is the decision of God not to punish us. But grace is the decision of God to save and bless us. In this way, he says, in this way, when you do this, then you are like your Father. You are like children of the Most High God. What he's saying is, Act like your father acts. Do as your father does. He is merciful to the unmercy, or those who are not merciful. And and so behave like children of the Most High God. This is his um, standard. In fact, what he's saying here, and I know you don't need a reminder in this, he's saying that God is gracious to the ungrateful, and he is merciful to the unmerciful, which is the very people that our culture and our world say you don't have to be gracious or merciful to. Like we say, we say show grace to other people, but if you have an example or an illustration or a story of when they weren't gracious, then you don't really have to be gracious to them. I mean, they're mean. You don't have to be kind to them. And yet the standard, and it's not, and I'm using standard like uh, it feels like that's the hoops that we have to jump through. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the, the shape we are supposed to form, the way we are supposed to, to show people, the light we are supposed to shine is that it's grace to the ungrateful, mercy to the unmerciful. That's what God, that, that's what our dad does. And so that's, that's what we do. 
That's what Christians do. So love your enemy, sacrifice for the good of those who might harm you, even if whatever, and do better than those who reject God. And be like God. Be like your Father. As I said, this whole series is Jesus is. He is this. He is that. He is today. He is compassionate. And so not only do we stand here in our minds in this sermon in which Jesus is speaking and we're all standing around listening, we hear him say these crazy words, love your enemy. Not only do we hear Jesus say that through Luke's record, but we also see Jesus live that in his life and particularly in his death. You see, when Jesus is being crucified, when Jesus is being nailed to a cross, when they are literally pulling the beard from his face, spitting in his face, cursing him, making fun of him, when they are doing those things, when they hit him and steal his coats, he could have lashed out at them. At any moment, he could have stopped the pain and the hurt. He could have, but he doesn't. In fact, he says another crazy thing. Father, forgive my enemy. He didn't say it that way, but that's what he means. So in his death, Jesus lives out what he was preaching. But not only in his death. See, here's the amazing thing about the Bible. It's not just the way that Jesus died. It's why he died. And so as Jesus is on that cross, as Jesus is taking that penalty, he was doing that for you. And Romans 5.10 tells us that when we have not yet received Jesus, when we live our lives the way that we are born, we are what Romans 5.10 calls us enemies of Christ. And so in his death, Jesus not only dies loving his enemies, but he dies to love his enemy, which is you. And so in the death of Jesus Christ, before the resurrection, but in the very death of Jesus Christ, we see this beautiful, tragic, heartbreaking, inspiring story in which Jesus stands before man and God between earth and heaven, and he gives to us what we don't deserve, love, and he takes on himself what we do deserve, the penalty of sin. It says the fullness of sin was poured out on Jesus. In Jesus, we see grace, we see mercy, and he does that for his enemies. The Bible says that if you trust Jesus, if you will love Jesus, if you will turn and follow Jesus, then you no longer have to be an enemy. You don't have to be an enemy anymore. You don't have to stay an enemy of Jesus if you just for two people to stop being enemies, you know what one of them has to do? Surrender. And if you will surrender, you are no longer an enemy. You are a friend. You are a brother. You are a sister. You are a daughter. You are a son. You are a child. You are no longer an enemy. You are family. Because he loved his enemies. So there is no negotiating out of this. Jesus expects those who follow him to intentionally sacrifice for the good of other peoples, and that includes our enemies. 
This concept that Jesus is teaching, while not at all easy, speaks to several issues that we face every single day. Love your enemies has a great impact on a number of of aspects of our lives. The first one that I would mention is our politics. I'm not saying that politics is not nuanced. I'm not saying that it's not complicated. It is. But I am saying, for those who are followers of Jesus, there is no path forward by which we ignore the commands of Jesus just to do what is politically expedient. That in our dealings with other people who do not agree with us or do not agree with you or me, who would see a policy or an issue on the other side or in a different perspective, there is no room for us to engage in that arena without love for the other person. I have said it and I'll say it again. Politics is nuanced. It's complicated. It's layered. And it takes understanding and it takes conversation. But do you know what's not nuanced or complicated? Being rude or dismissive or hurtful or derogatory. Those are not complicated or hard to understand and they are not consistent with a life of a person who honors Jesus. Some of, it's heartbreaking to me, but some of the most rude people that I see like on on Twitter or on social media have follower of Jesus Christ in their bio. That's not consistent. That's not true. You can engage in politics without being unloving or unkind toward those who would disagree with you. Politics is an area where we need to learn to love our enemies. And so is social media. The news has been dominated by the topic of social media. And the headline is that the giants in social media, the giants in the tech industry, have decided to censure those whom they disagree with politically. That's what happened. That's the news. That's what is happening. And I believe they are a private company. They are allowed to do that. That's what private companies are allowed to do. I said that when it was a baker in Colorado. I'm going to say that when it's a tech industry in California. Private companies are allowed to do what private companies are allowed to do. However, in the whole conversation about whether or not someone is allowed to censure another person, where my heart hurts is the reality that so many Christians are trying to engage in that conversation with it without engaging and ignoring this truth. Where is the personal censuring? Because it is our responsibility, our individual responsibility about what we say and how we say it. You can debate whether or not they were allowed to do that, but you have to at least consider the fact that you're not allowed to say and to do and to be some of the ways that we are saying that we are on social media. And it's not just the way that we engage politics or things that we disagree with, our policies, our local happenings. There is this practice on social media, and it's rampant. And it's even rampant within Christians in which we would post things designed to hurt other people. That we post our food in an angle and our clothing in a way and our house in this light and our vacations in a way that don't say, look at what I'm participating in. We're doing it to say, look at what you're not participating in. We do this to hurt other people. And that's got to stop. That's got to be let go. 
Don't use the platform that you have in order to even passively hurt other people. That's not loving toward your enemy. That's not even loving toward your friend. And even sinners do that. So I think one of the ways, the real key to all of this is being ready to respond in love. Respond in love. See, I think we as Christians, and and I'll just speak to my church, to, to Second Baptist, not my church like I own it, but my church like I'm a part of it. I think we are a loving group. I really do think that, you know, on social media, I see the way that we all interact and engage with one another, and I don't see anything where people are being rude or mean or anything like that, and I love that. I think our church is generally a kind, open, respectful, engaging sort of group of people. I tell that to people all the time. I really do. Where I think that we um, stumble or what's harder for us is not when we decide to engage in this arena or that arena and we do so in a compassionate way. I think where we struggle is when, when the comment comes out of left field, when we're knocked back on our heels, when somebody says something that we're not expecting and then we, 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 we lash out, we respond too quickly. And I think there, that's where we need to really focus on being slow to speak and slow to anger. That if we are so blessed as to have a moment between the comment and the response, then that we would choose love. That we would always choose love. And sometimes choosing love means that we just don't even respond. But that's what God means. That's what Christ means when he tells us to love our enemy. In 1944, during World War II, there was a 21-year-old named Howard Lynn. And Howard Lynn was shot down. He was a gunman in, in a plane. And that evening um, in 1944, a German plane shot the wing of the plane that he was in. A fire broke out in the wing, and the, and the pilot of the plane told him to, to put the fire out. You know, use an extinguisher, put the fire out. And he says he couldn't. He said it was in the wing, he couldn't get to it. He said, in fact, it felt like a blowtorch was blowing back on him. So, as a 21-year-old, in the dead of night, he says that he attached a chest pack parachute to his, horn, to his harness, opened a door in the bottom of the plane and jumped out. Okay, I know that's what soldiers do. I know that's what military, I know. It's still amazing that a 21-year-old would open a door and jump out of a plane, right? He says, and this is an interesting uh, sort of quote from the story that he said. He said, airmen in World War II did not practice parachute jumps. He said, they told us our first jump has to be good anyways, so there's no need to practice. They simply said, don't pull your ripcord on the chute until you are almost on the ground. Otherwise, it takes you so long to come down that you will land in German arms. That's the practice. That's what they told you, okay? Jump out and wait a while before you pull the cord. So he says that as he jumped out, he was spinning through the air, and he eventually gains control of the spin, is able to focus in on the ground, and on the ground in the night, he sees these small fires that he assumes are debris, are pieces of other aircraft that were shot down. And just as the trees are approaching him very quickly, he pulls the ripcord, and he um, gently glides down to the earth, you know, just as hard as you do. And he releases his chute, he runs off to the tree line into the thicket there and he hides overnight um, from enemy fire or enemy um, uh, surveillance. The next day he gets up and he's walking and with a map that he says was pointless because he had no idea where he was and a little compass he started to navigate his way west. 
And as he was going west, he came to this little village where he came across this 15-year-old boy. The 15-year-old boy takes him, because he speaks a little English, takes him back to his home. And his mom and his grandmother give Howard uh, coffee and a sandwich, you know, help him and enrich um, his energy and strength at that moment. While um, the little boy, uh, the 15-year-old, goes out into the street and flags down a German police officer who was on a motorcycle and turns him in. He turns Howard in. Howard is now captured. Howard is now a prisoner of war. He was forced to march 87 days straight with next to no food with 2,000 other allied soldiers. He said they weren't allowed to shower to clean themselves. He says the only benefit of um, all of them stinking and how bad they stank was that nobody knew who stank that bad. They all just stank. Sadly, he said that nearly a quarter of those who were marching died on the march. Eventually, they find their way to Hanover, Germany, where they are kept and mistreated for nearly a year. In rudimentary conditions, he says that many of the, 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 the prisoners just went crazy, ran at the fence, and started um, conflicts or initiated a conflict with the soldiers, and they lost their lives in that. He says that nearly a year to the day, four English soldiers drove into the imprisonment where they were, and they were freed. They were allowed to go home. So he does that. He goes back home. He goes to Iowa and he becomes a farmer. In 1994, this researcher comes to his house and asks him some questions. He was doing a project on World War II soldiers and the effects of the war on him. So in that process of showing pictures and telling stories and, and recounting the, those days, he and his wife are flown to Germany. They are flown to Germany where Howard meets a man named Wilfred Biermann. Wilfred Biermann. He's a German man. He's 65 years old. Wilfred and Howard become friends. He accounts, uh, according to Howard, Wilfred took he and his wife to the nicest restaurants in their town. He fed them some of the nicest meals. In fact, one time, Howard says that he felt like he was a king. He felt like he was being treated like a king. For the next couple of years, um, seven years exactly, because Wilfred died about seven years later, but for those seven years, every year at Christmas time, Wilfred would send a box of German chocolates and goodies and little treats back to Iowa for his friend Howard. He would send him back these Christmas holiday treats for his friend Howard. Howard and Wilfred became really good friends, even though Wilfred was the 15-year-old that turned Howard in back the day that he was captured. Enemies that become friends. We look at stories like that and we're amazed. We look at stories like that and we think, that should not happen. We're surprised by those sort of endings. That the man would become friends with the boy who turned him in, that caused him to go through all of that. But as Christians, we should not be surprised by these stories. We should not be amazed by them because that is what we were told to do. And also, we have one of those stories. We have a story where, like that, Jesus treated us, his enemies, like friends, when he loved us. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.